So this is a moment, perhaps uh, even a turning point in our lives, because something is going on around us and in us right now that may fundamentally change the way we approach life. This even if the world finds a way to arrest the coronavirus. As previous generations were shaped by the plague or the great famine or the civil war or the great war or the depression, we will likely be shaped by this moment in time. Now, take all of those historical turning points that I just mentioned and pour them in a bucket, including the one we're in right now. Together en masse, they pale in importance to the single most crucial turning point in cosmic history. That moment in time can be condensed in just to a, in a few seconds when Jesus heaved himself up on the nails in his feet, sucked in his last gulp of air, and exhaled for the last time. Now, last week, as we wrapped up our previous series, Barry explained why this moment that I'm referring to is the turning point in history. He reminded us last week that it became clear that humanity was going to need something deeper than countless animal sacrifices to atone for human sin, something lasting, something that would not just save us from endless death, but would change us into sources of life. We needed a greater sacrifice he said, it's, it's as if every one of us placed our hand down on Christ's head and said, this man is me, as he was executed. And because of his death, the curtain of the temple, which represented the gates of Eden, was torn in two, and there was no longer a barrier between us and the presence of God. It's in that moment in time that we are going to turn our attention to in the weeks ahead. Those tension and horror-filled days in the last week of Jesus take up a huge portion of the four Gospels. I mean, a third of the Gospel of Matthew is about these last days of, of Jesus, a third of the Gospel of Mark, a quarter of the Gospel of Luke, and nearly half of the Gospel of John is devoted to this moment, this turning point in cosmic history. These moments that we're going to look at over the weeks ahead are so controversial, they're so frightening, and honestly, in some respects, so disgusting that we are forced every year to ask ourselves questions like, do I really believe all this? What do I believe about Jesus himself? And what did Jesus want me to do with all this tragedy, this battle, and ultimately, yeah, this victory? Now, we're going to ask ourselves those questions in these weeks leading up to Easter. We're going to go in the moment and try to place ourselves smack dab in the middle of the story as if we were there. We're going to recline at the table and feel our feet being washed. We're going to try to stay awake in the garden as Jesus prays his heart out. We're going to experience the fury of the betrayer a betrayal of a former friend. We're going to agonize as we walk with Jesus through the trial. We're going to sob at the foot of the cross, and we're going to feel the shock and awe of the empty tomb. And through it all, we're going to be standing right beside Peter. We're going to try to look at things through his eyes. We're going to go in the moment with Peter, the 
arguably the most volatile, the uh, most authentic everyman of the disciples, the, the feeler, the passionate one, the, the guy who'd jump out of the boat to get to Jesus one moment and then the next drop expletives denying that he even knew the man. And like Peter, you and I are going to be left with the same kind of questions he had. Who is this Jesus anyway? And what does he want from me? So today, we're going to be in at least three Gospels, uh, but primarily in the Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of John. I think it would be helpful if you had a Bible. So um, you have one, hopefully. Open it up, or our, you can turn on our app, and you'll find the Scripture there. I'll get in the Gospel of Mark just for a few moments, uh, but I will think I'll put that on the screen so you don't, uh, we don't wear yourself out looking through the Bible. But Luke chapter 22 Verse 14 is where we're going to start. Luke 22, 14. Now, as you're looking, getting your Bibles open, let me get, get the setting here. It's a large room on the second floor of a building, and it's evening. And the occasion in which Jesus and his followers got together was the annual festival of the Passover. Now, what you're going to see is most of the events that we're going to look at for the next uh, few weeks that cover the last seven days of Jesus happen at night or in the dark overcast of a massive storm, except for Easter morning, of course. Now, what, as a result of feeling the night in these last, these last moments and, and the, what we tend to do with this time of the, uh, in the church season is we approach it with an attitude of quiet contemplation and thoughtfulness. We light candles. We even tone down our musical worship during this season. It is what I think the introspective, subdued season of the church. And we get caught up maybe in the image of the Leonardo da Vinci picture of the Last Supper, which feels, has that feeling to it. But can I suggest that maybe we've got the tone wrong, at least for this first night, maybe for the rest of the time. I'm not sure that these last days of Jesus were so somber or muted. Because as you're going to see, when we go into this first moment with Peter in the upper room, you're going to see that this really was no hushed conversation. You're going to see there was anger, there was argument, there was false bravado, and there were accusations thrown around. And in the end, Jesus himself, you're going to see, I think he turns this, maybe this quiet dinner, into an insurgency. Now, let me show you what I mean. Luke chapter 22, verse 14 let me read, I'll read a little bit, and we'll talk as we go. When the time came, Jesus and the apostles sat down together at the table. And Jesus said, I've been very eager to eat this Passover meal with you before my suffering begins. For I tell you now that I won't eat this meal again until its meaning is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. So he says, I have been very eager, he says in verse 15. Literally, it's translated with, des or it was the original language, with desire, I have desired this. It's the same word twice. With deep passion, I have passionately waited for this moment. Entering into this meal, Jesus is worked up. He is agitated and he has a sense of anticipation. You're going to see why as we go on. Verse 24. Then they began to argue among themselves about who would be the greatest among them. And Jesus told them, in this world, the kings and great men lorded over their people, yet they are called friends of the people. But among you, it will be different. Those who are the greatest among you should take the lowest rank, and the leader should be like the servant. Who is more important, the one who sits at the table or the one who serves? Well, it's the one who sits at the table, of course, but not here. 
for I am among you as one who serves. So the dinner starts with an argument. It says they began to argue. Now the grammar of this, the word, it seems to imply that this wasn't the first time. This has been going on for a while. The actual translation could be for the love of contention. These guys have been contending for a while about who was the most powerful, who was going to get the place in, in Jesus' kingdom, who was going to be the guy at the highest level. The problem is that these disciples were still first mountain people. Now, I'm going to take you back a little bit. We've been, uh, in the past, I talk about the idea of first mountain um, people and second mountain people. First mountain person, we all climb the first mountain in our life, and it's the, the mountain where we're trying to discover the, the container of our life, and we're trying to form our identity, and there's a lot of comparison going on. Um, and I, I want to be this person in the world. That's what these guys were like. At some point in our lives, we hit the valley of, uh, of bewilderment because of some kind of failure or defeat or just questions in life, and then hopefully we can move on to second mountain living, which is, which, which is living with destiny and, and living others-oriented. The first mountain, first mountain people are pretty much only oriented on themselves. Second mountain people are always oriented on, on others. These guys were still first mountain people. They were still thinking, who am I compared to you and compared to you and compared to everybody else? I want to be the best, and Jesus was determined to push them off of the first mountain into the valley of bewilderment. Look, at, look again at verse 26. Let me read it again. He said, but among you it will be different. Those are the greatest among you should take the lowest rank, and the leader should be like the servant. Here, I am among you as one who serves. That's what I want you to be. And then he freaked them out by giving them a massive object lesson. He disrobed and got down on all fours, hands and knees. Now, turn to Gospel John at this point, chapter 13, verse 4, and we'll pick up the story there. Gospel of John, chapter 13, verse 4. I'll give you a minute to find it. All right. John, chapter 13, verse 4. It says this. So then he got up from the table, took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist, and poured water into a basin. And he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel he had around him. And when Jesus came to Simon Peter, Peter said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, you don't understand now what I'm doing, but someday you will. No, Peter protested, you will never wash my feet. Peter's freaked out. What the heck are you doing? Stop it. Don't even think about it. Jesus, don't do this. This was a complete affront to Peter and likely the rest of the disciples. Why? Well, first of all, it was clearly a slap to the face of the contenders. Jesus is trying to get them off this first mountain of selfish thinking, and it's like he says, I'm, I'm just going to push you into the valley of bewilderment. I'm going to get down on my hands and knees, and I'm going to disrobe, and I'm going to show you what second mountain living looks like. It was also a shock to the cultural system. It was an attack on the caste system of the day. Foot washing is an in-your-face thing. Have, have, you ever, have you ever had your feet washed? I have. I don't like it. I, I don't like it when people touch my feet. I don't like the feeling of someone on their hands and knees in front of me. There's something that happens. It is so awkward because it almost, you're looking down at the person and you feel unnaturally superior. It's not true, but you feel that. That's what the disciples were feeling. It was a completely awkward 
situation. It's hard to receive. And then, so Jesus forced all that awkwardness upon them to make his revolutionary point. There was no, look, I know the people who have washed my feet have done so tenderly. I've loved them for that. Um, and, 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 they, and they have washed, you, maybe you've had this, they've washed your feet and then they dry it and maybe put some oil on. It's a beautiful, tender thing. That's not what was going on here. This was shock bordering on anger. Let's, let's go on, uh, the verse eight. Jesus replied, unless I wash you, you won't belong to me. Now, Peter is trying to mitigate his feelings and he turned, he, in essence, this is what I picture Peter saying. He looks at Jesus and he goes, oh, I see what you're doing. I get what you're doing here. Then wash, if you're going to wash my feet, then this is a spiritual object lesson you're making, right? Then wash my hands and, and head as well, Lord, not just my feet. And in verse 10, let's see what Jesus replies. In essence, Jesus is saying, no, you're missing the point. He said, a person who is bathed all over does not need to wash except for the feet to be entirely clean. And you are already clean. Not all of you, but for Jesus knew who would betray him. That is what he meant when he said, not all of you are clean. In other words, Jesus is saying, you're missing the point here. I'm not washing your feet to make some kind of spiritual point about you needing to be cleansed in your soul. Let's go on, verse 12. After washing their feet, he put on his robe again, and he sat down and he asked, do you understand what I'm doing? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, because that's what I am. And since I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. I've given you an example to follow, so do as I've done to you. I, I tell you the truth. Slaves are not greater than their masters, nor is the messenger more important than the one who sends the message. So now that you know these things, God will bless you for doing them. Again, this was no sweet, tender moment. Jesus was making a social statement. He was mounting a protest against first mountain living, the individualism and hubris and self-protection. Jesus is saying, watch this, Jesus is saying this, you're no better than me, so you do this too. This is the way followers of mine will be defined from this moment on. This is how you will approach the needs of others. This is now your permanent posture on your hands and your knees. This is how you will face a world of pain. This is how you will face a world of hatred. This is how you will face a world of loneliness. And this, years later, will be the approach that I want my people to take in the day of the coronavirus on our hands and knees. And here are your tools, a towel and a basin. You can see what I mean, how emotional this was. I mean, this was no tender moment. This was a little crazy-making. And the evening's just getting started. Let's, it takes another radical turn. Go on to verse 21. Now Jesus was deeply troubled this is after all this is happening. He's deeply troubled and he exclaimed, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. As if they're not churned up enough. One of you will betray me. And the disciples looked at each other. What on earth could he mean? Now, keep your hand in, John. We'll come back there in a minute. But look at the screen. Here's how Mark captures what happens next. 
greatly distressed. Each one asked in, in turn, am I the one? 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 And he replied, it's the one of you 12 who is eating from the bowl with me. For the Son of Man must die, as the Scriptures declared long ago, but how terrible it will be for the one who betrays him. It will be better for that man if he had never been born. Okay, this is another emotional bomb thrown in the room. He doesn't pull any punches. He says, one of you all is going to betray me, and the one who is going to betray me, you're going to wish you had never been born. Mm. you're going to wish you'd never, it's going to be so torturous for you. Wow. Go back to John 13. Still have your Bibles open. Verse 23. The disciple Jesus loved, that's John likely, was sitting next to Jesus at the table, and Simon Peter motioned him and said, hey, 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 who's he talking about? Who's he talking about? So that disciple leans over to Jesus and says, who are you talking about? And Jesus responded in verse 26, It is the one to whom I give the bread I dip in the bowl. And when he had dipped it, he gave it to Judas, son of Simon Iscariot. And when Judas had eaten the bread, Satan entered into him. Have you ever seen a person who's demonized? I have. I wish I hadn't, but I've seen a number of people who have been demonized. Sometimes... They exhibit mild signs of agitation. Other times I've seen people under the influence of demons who have had actual physical contortion of their bodies. Now, I don't, we don't know what happened at this dinner, but John remembered the moment when he recalled watching it and he actually used the phrase, and Satan entered into Judas. Did Judas have some sort of physical manifestation? We don't know. But keep in mind, while all this was going on, some kind of demonic possession happened in the middle of everything else. Verse 27. Then Jesus told him, hurry and do what you're going to do. None of the others at the table knew what Jesus meant. Since Judas was their treasurer, some thought Jesus was telling him to go and pay for the food or to give some money to the poor. So Judas left at once, going out into the night. So let's just stop for a second. You realize what's happened so far. The night which they ostensibly they got together to celebrate the Passover, has turned into accusations. It's turned into hubris. It's turned into Jesus making a revolutionary, revolutionary statement about the caste system and about how they're going to relate to one another in the world. But it's not over yet. Look at verse 31. As soon as Judas left the room, Jesus said, The time has come for the Son of Man to enter into his glory, and God will be glorified because of him. And since God receives glory because of the Son, he will give his own glory to the Son, and he will do so at once. Dear children, I'll be with you only a little longer. And as I told the Jewish leaders, you will search for me, but you can't come where I'm going. So now I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other just as I have loved you. You should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Simon Peter asked, Lord, well, where are you going? And Jesus replied, you can't go with me now, Peter, but you will follow me later. But why can't I come now, Lord? I'm ready to die for you. Uh-oh, we know where this is going. I'm ready to die for you. And Jesus, look what Jesus says in 38. Die for me? Did you say, 
You want to die for me? Well, I tell you the truth, Peter. Before the rooster crows, tomorrow morning, you will deny me three times that you even know me. Another emotional bomb thrown into the room. Oh, really, Peter? At this point, the room is a seething pile of anxiety and finger-pointing and pearl-clutching and woe is me. Jesus is pulling no punches. Spare me the egotism. Spare me the false humility. When the way gets tough, I'm afraid some of you or most of you are going to bail on me. Now, I want to stop the sermon right here. We're going to, there's one more scene I want to look at, but I, I want to stop for a second here and let's pull away from the scriptures and let's just talk about us. This is a really hard question to ask, but we have, if we're putting ourselves in the moment with Peter and feeling what he's feeling, and Jesus has just said, oh, really? Oh, you say you follow me? Mm -hmm. You say that I am, uh, that you die for me? Are you going to deny me? So the question is, would we deny him? Would you? I mean, what level of commitment do you have to Jesus? Is it possible that you could stand accused? Are you, are you a Jesus fanboy or fangirl? Or are you an insurgent who are with him even if it kills you? What level of commitment do you have to this man? What on earth do you believe about Jesus? And how does it inform the way you live? How is it informing the way you're moving to this world of fear during the time of the coronavirus? How is your relationship with Jesus impacting you as you move into the world? These moments in these last days of Jesus, they're not the, the, this emoji. Hmm. They're the wide-eyed emoji. Like, what do I believe? One more story and then we'll wrap it up. Can you go back to Luke chapter 22? And this will be, this is where we'll end our time. Luke 22, verse 17. Luke 22, 17, here we go. Then he took a cup of wine and he gave thanks to God for it in the middle of the Passover celebration. And he said, take this and share it among yourselves for I will not drink wine again until the kingdom of God has come. He took some bread, gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And after supper, he took another cup of wine. And he said, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. Now, we, the Christian church, has treated this moment for the last 2,000 years rightfully, as a meditative moment. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, it's usually sweet and tender and quiet and moving. But what really happened here in this moment? The Passover, which they were celebrating, is known as the watershed event in Jewish history, the defining moment for the Jewish people. God instituted the Feast of the Passover as an everlasting memorial to their deliverance. It, it is a 15-step choreographed combination of tastes 
and sounds and sensations and smells. Each item in the Passover celebration has a place. Four cups of wine, veggies dipped in salt water, flat, dry, cracked matzah, bitter herbs, haroset. These are all elements, the sights, the smells, the sounds, the textures that the Jewish people were repeating year after year for a long, long time. The event was sacred. The elements were sacrosanct. You don't mess with these elements unless you're Jesus. And he messed with these elements. In this moment, Jesus upended 1,400 years of sacred tradition or at least spoke into it and redefined it. Yes, Jesus said he came to fulfill the law, but I'm going to be honest, it feels like there's a little bit of obliteration going on here, blowing up the tradition. And he went one step further. It, that wasn't even enough. Not only was he reinventing some of these elements within the Passover, he went to a very, in that day, a very disgusting, to some people, um, suggestion. This is my blood. Drink it. This is my body. Eat it. Now, you may or may not remember what happened in the weeks previous. There was a moment where Jesus miraculously uh, turned fish and bread into enough of a meal for 5,000 people. It was mind-boggling. So, Thousands of people followed him because they wanted to see these miracles over and over again. And it, he came to a point where he looked at the people and he said, you know, you're absolutely missing the point here. And they were, such, they were so clinging to him that he said, here's what I want you to do. You want me to make food for you? Well, here it is. I want you to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And the scripture said that at that point, people were disgusted and they walked away. He just repeated that here just repeated it with his disciples. In essence, he's forcing them. He's pushing them. Are you still good with this? It's outrageous. That's why I'm telling you this night, this moment with Peter, what a night. Let's try to recap what Peter has experienced through his own eyes, what questions he might have been asking himself as these events were playing out. You know, as he's watching the James and John get you know, yelled at for wanting to have the highest place in the kingdom, Peter's asking, well, am I full of myself? Am I prideful? Then he had to ask himself, am I really capable of betraying Jesus? Look at Judas. Could I come under the influence of Satan like him? Am I strong enough to stay true to Jesus and not deny him? Can I stand against culture and take the posture of a slave to other human beings? Can I get down on my hands and knees? And am I willing to ingest Jesus into the fiber of my being? Can I do this? By the end of the evening, this man was turned inside out and upside down. Can I do this thing? I followed him for three years. He's, he's taking me, he's pushing me to places I haven't thought before. And I guess the question for us is putting ourselves with Peter is, can you, can I? Is my idea of Jesus revolutionary enough? Is it outrageous enough to match this scene? 
as you stand with Peter, how would you answer his own questions? Are you capable of denying Jesus? Are you able to get down on your hands and knees and live this kind of a servant life? Are you strong enough to stay true to him and not deny him? Whew. Those are the questions that we need to be asking ourselves in these days leading up to Easter. Can you place your hand on his head to allow him to substitute himself for you for your sin and then will you join him on all fours caring for the needs of the people around you? What a night. What a night. And with those questions and feelings ringing in Peter's ears, and in his heart, Scripture tells us they sang a song and they went out into the night exhausted.